Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I'm your co-host today. Welcome to uh, our program, and happy Memorial Day. Uh, in studio with me today is uh, Pastor Peter Martin, also a veteran, a Marine veteran, served uh, four, four years, years yeah. right, <laughs> in the Marines, and uh, uh, fought in Afghanistan for two tours, I believe. Yeah, two tours and, to uh, Afghanistan. And uh, so we're... Um, Thank you for your service. Yeah, appreciate and, uh, it. Man. My my father was a, a Vietnam veteran, and a Purple Heart, and you know, kind of a Forrest Gump situation where mm. <laughs> got shot up, but uh, it didn't like uh, maim maim him or anything like that. But uh, we're so glad you're with us. If you're listening in, and uh, this is a weekday program where we take questions from you right uh, online, where we live stream. Uh, questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, about faith. And so if you have a question uh, in those areas or anything to do with world religions, please chime in. You can follow along with us in multiple ways. Uh, you can follow us on, of course, Facebook, where we live stream. If you go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash at CCF Tucson, please be sure to like our fan page. <clears throat> and you can just, in the comments section during the broadcast, ask questions pertaining to any specific passage, or like I said, uh, pertaining to faith, God's existence, the historicity of the Bible, and so much more. Uh, <clears throat> you can also follow us along with uh, the program on YouTube. I've got, uh, I've got the dumb today. I cannot brain. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've, been, I've been ill for a couple of weeks, and I'm just now kind of getting back into tune. But uh, follow us on YouTube, our YouTube handle is uh, a reason for hope 546 and if you do be sure to subscribe hit that notification bell so that you know when we're live with this program again every weekday 5 to 6 p.m you can chime in on youtube facebook you also can uh, watch the program post after the fact on rumble we're uploading them there but we're not live streaming there quite yet so be sure to follow us on rumble so we can grow our audience there and we for those who do not uh, really care for social media platforms and just want to watch the program and interact and ask questions in another way, go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Go to the Watch Live in our navigation, and that'll take you to the live stream as well as all of our services, weekends and weeknight services, where you can not only uh, watch live, but you can ask questions, you can make prayer requests, and so on. So we'd encourage you to do that. And finally, download our app. We have an app, which is pretty cool. The app has a nifty little Bible in it, and you can take notes, you can join chat groups, you can stay with current events. And this app can be downloaded, on, of course, at the iTunes and uh, Google Play Store. Uh, so please be sure to do that if you want to get more engaged with our community of believers here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we also <clears throat> live stream our services to all Fire, Amazon products, and Roku. So if you want to add our channel to, and you have one of those products, uh, feel free to do so. And you can uh, watch our services. We have services, uh, three services on Sundays and a Wednesday night service that you can tune in on. So we'd encourage you to do that. If you want to ask a question in this program a little bit more discreetly, you may do so by just emailing us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. All letters, no numbers, questionsforhope at gmail.com for those of you listening in on the radio. And finally, I'd encourage you to follow our pastor, our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at ScottR4H. With that said, 
Peter, would you pray for our time? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Father, we love you and we're grateful for you. I uh, thank you that we have the opportunity to get into your word, to study it, uh, to view it in a way that we can hopefully understand you a little bit better, to be able to defend our faith to others in a more clear and concise way. Uh, I pray that you would allow us to speak in a way that honors and glorifies you, God. And uh, we do pray for Memorial Day. I'm thankful for those who live in the United States, that we would be more thankful for the freedom that we enjoy and thankful to those people who have fought for the freedom that we have. And in your name, amen. Amen. So we have another, uh, on Mondays, we've been doing sort of a character analysis of individuals who have helped shape the modern Western world, not the Western world in general, but what we would say today the modern way is that is that yeah kind of the what you would call the the thinkers that moved us to the point we're at the post judeo-christian world that we live in the secular atheistic world that we live in so even though the majority of people in our culture do claim to still have some sort of a religious or spiritual affiliation um they are very secular in their worldview and their ideas and whether they know it or not even many christians derive a lot of their thoughts and their beliefs from these men that we've been going over. Mm. Uh, and so far, they're only men. Uh, we will get into women. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Those people who want equal representation, don't worry. We'll talk about some women who have led, paved the way to the place we're at right, right now. I hope the founder of Planned Parenthood is on your list. Yes. <laughs> Margaret Sanger? Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll mention her briefly, uh, but she didn't really come up with any like really new ideas. She just kind of followed the eugenics beliefs that mm. were alive in a well around her time. Mm. But we'll talk more about why eugenics exists. So last week, me and Dave talked about Charles Darwin, who actually, from his ideas, is where eugenics came from. But today, we want to talk about a guy named Thomas Malthus. Now, a, a lot of what we would call uh, environmental philosophy comes from this guy. And even like what people think about population, parenting, uh, and, and even our role within this world comes from this guy, Thomas Malthus. So before we get into his ideas, I want to just, I feel like it's necessary to give the biblical worldview, because again, this is one of those ideas that we just take so for granted in our culture that we don't really evaluate or look at it. So from the Bible, how does the Bible view humanity? How does the Bible look at people being on the earth? So right from the opening, right from the get-go, we are called image bearers of the one true and only God, right? So God creates man in his image. He sees us as the peak of his creative work, and he commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to be and to multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, even after the fall, God repeats that same commandment to them. So it's not as though once mankind fell, then God said, okay, well, never mind. You guys are not benefits to the earth. I want you to be wiped out and never return. He instead reiterates his promise. He says that I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to subdue it. Now, this is very interesting because in a book called Paradise Lost by uh, John Milton, he has this interesting segment where, and, and by the way, it's a poetic depiction of the fall of Adam and Eve, right? After the temptation of Satan. <coughs> and after they fall, Eve actually tells Adam that they should stop procreating and they should just commit suicide, essentially. And the reason why is because she says, well, since we are fallen and we're cursed, if we have more children, we propagate the curse. And Adam's argument against his wife is he says, yes, but from our seed, the world will also be blessed. 
any quotes from God, where he says that the seed of the woman will be an enmity with the devil, and the, the devil will bruise his heel and he will crush his head. And he says the only way that the, the power of the curse is going to be defeated is through our children. So he says, no, we need to keep procreating because it's through us that the world's going to be redeemed. And even after Jesus comes, right, which is the promised Messiah, even after that moment, you see various promises and ideas throughout the New Testament that encourage people to procreate. And the idea is always that now that the seed of the Messiah has come, we can actually know God and be a part of the work that he's doing in redeeming the earth. So one of the main passages that <coughs> illustrates this actually pretty well is Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about the creation literally standing on tiptoe, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God to be made, that they also may be redeemed. In other words, the creation itself is going to be redeemed, but it's going to be redeemed after the general resurrection. So after the people of God, the faithful to God, are brought back in our physical resurrected bodies, the created order will follow after, because God's plan has not changed. He has always wanted mankind to fill his creation and to subdue it and to rule with him in heavenly glory. That's always been God's plan and it has not changed. Uh, in fact, in Psalm 127, this is verse uh, 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Hmm. And in Malachi chapter 2, God talks about the beauty of marriage. And he says, For why does he make the two one? That they may have godly offspring. So you have passage after passage after passage that shows that the great consolation and beauty of the human life is ideally that we might be able to join together with another human being in the bonds of marriage that perfectly replicates the unity of God that he has with his own people, and that through that unity we would be able to create in our image bearing children and raising those children in a way in which they can know God, they're best prepared to know God and to serve God, right? That is the sounding drum of the Bible. You cannot come away from reading the Bible and think that humanity is bad or that God doesn't like people or that God doesn't want or desire for his people to procreate, for us to actually marry and to have children, right? There's no negative passage in the Bible about that. So how is it that many Christians no longer think that it's important to have kids? Right? In fact, of all the Western countries, which the, the predominant religion in Western countries is still Christianity, only Israel is above replacement rates. Meaning that if you were to, if it wasn't for immigration, which there's a lot in Western nations, if it wasn't for immigration, in the next century, every Western nation would at least half in population if things were left to their mm -hmm. devices, right? People are not procreating. We're just, we're <clears throat> not replacing the population. We're actually declining based on birth rates. That's right. And there's an increased number of people in my generation, the millennial generation and Generation Z, who are declaring themselves to be kid-free, meaning that they're getting married mm -hmm. and they're choosing not to have children. And many Christians don't see that as a moral issue. They don't see it as morally or ethically wrong. In fact, many Christians see it as a ethically good thing. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, yeah, there's an overpopulation problem. We're running out of resources. We're running out of food. Look at all the famine that's around the world. What is wrong with us? You know, we need to really restrict the population growth on earth. This idea is not biblical. 
It's clearly in uh, opposition to what the Bible says, but yet we believe it. So where does this idea come from? As a, as a side note, is that <clears throat> would you consider it sinful? I know several couples who some have said we want to devote our lives to ministry, so that's mm-hmm. why we've chosen to before we got married not to have children. Others just didn't want to have children for selfish reasons. But <clears throat> selfish or not, is it wrong to be married and choose if you're capable and mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with you? There's no abnormalities or anything preventing the natural process of childbearing <laughs> from so, taking place. Is it is it sinful to choose not to have kids as a married couple? I want to define sin real quick, just so I'm not speaking in a way that unfairly condemns people. So sin just means missing the mark. It's an archery term. And what it insinuates is that there is an ideal that we are supposed to orient our lives toward. So once we know what the ideal is, we have to understand we're always going to fall short in many different ways. That's the whole point of the cross is that nobody can live up to the ideal. We need to be saved, right? We need to be forgiven and redeemed from the ways that we don't live up to the way that we ought to be. So the question is, is can I prove from the Bible that having children is ideal for the Christian life? And the answer is yes. Does that mean that it will always happen? No, and I'll talk about the exceptions in a second, but it's very clear that it is ideal. Beyond that, sin in the Bible, because again, it, it just means missing the mark or not living up to the ideal, it's not just committing wickedness. It's actually not, like, you can sin by not performing an act of righteousness. Mm-hmm. So this comes from the book of James, where he says, to the one who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So James is saying that sin is not just me telling a lie or hurting you or something like that. Sin could be, I know to do something that is good, and I refuse right, to yeah. do it. Anything that's not done in faith is sin. That's right. So let me rephrase the question then. Could uh, two people, spiritual people, be walking in faith through decision to say we want to serve God in different ways, and we've we've chose we feel God has led us to not have kids. It would be ideal for our marriage and our work to not have children. So there are several instances in the Bible in which people are commanded to not procreate. Um, one would be Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah is commanded not to procreate specifically, and the other is in First Corinthians chapter seven, where Paul himself says that he is celibate, right? He is not going to have kids. And he encourages many in Corinth to not have kids as well. Now, what are the parallels between those two passages? Because those are the only two in the entire Bible where people are directly commanded not to procreate or discouraged from doing so. Well, they're actually the same problem. In both Jeremiah and Corinthians, what's happening is heavy persecution is on the rise in those places, specifically towards the faithful in God and if procreation happens, if they're able to grow their families, they will endure undue burdens of loss, persecution, and even hopelessness and despair as a result of having kids. Even mm-hmm. Jesus, in Matthew 24, he says, Woe to you who are pregnant and nursing babes at the time of the Great Tribulation. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a situation, in other words, where there is heavy persecution, right? You're being hunted down, literally hunted down, and people are trying to kill you. Having kids is not going to be good. It's actually going to be a detriment to you being able to be faithful to God. But in these cases, it was like, for example, in Corinthians, he was suggesting to remain single, not be married and not have children. That's right. Which perhaps was not a conceivable option in the first century. Well, yeah, before birth, birth control and things like that, it would have been pretty, unless you were going to be celibate, which in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually forbids, 
uh, celibacy within marriage is considered bad by Paul within 1 Corinthians 7. So because the the lack of birth control, Paul would just say, hey, just remain single. But the idea is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 7, because of the present distress. That's what right, he says yeah. in the chapter. Because persecution is happening, because Christians are being hunted down, it's not good for you to have kids. I mean, look at Paul's life. How would that guy have been a good father? He was in and out of prison every other day. You know, he was being yeah. beaten. You know, he would have been a terrible father. His kids well, would have and, not had a father, basically. And, and he also used the example of you'll be more concerned with how to please your spouse first and, and vice versa, and that'll distract you. Which, again, in, is, is good advice way. for a persecuted existence, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think about it all the time. You know, even when I was in the military, I thank God that I wasn't in the military when I was married mm. uh, because I saw what a burden it was on the guys that I was serving with. You know, you'd be in, in, in country and you'd be fighting for your life. And at home, your wife is without you. You know, you're missing your kids' birthdays. What, what happens if your wife gets sick? What happens if something happens to her? You can't protect her. You can't defend her. You can't provide for her. That's a burden. That's a mm. huge burden for someone to go through when their life is on the line. And Paul is saying, yeah, it's right for you as a husband to put the needs of your wife before your own and to put her first, right, to serve God by serving her. But if you're in a persecuted situation, that's not good, right? It's, it's hard for you to do that. It's better to just be single and have your eyes on the prize. So there are Christians who are called to persecuted realms of ministry, right, to, to be a missionary in an area like China or the Middle East or Africa in which they're going to be in constant turmoil, fear for their lives, right? They might be risking going to prison at various times. And yeah, procreation for them might not be a great idea. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't do it. There are some Christians who do. But you could make an argument for that. You could mm-hmm. say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to a persecuted area. It's like a Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 situation, or it's like a Jeremiah in Jerusalem situation. Yeah. Absolutely. What I don't follow is, well, I just want to serve more at my church so I can't have kids. Well, no, no, no. Our, our first and foremost calling as Christians are to the roles that God has assigned to us, right? If Paul says it's in 1 Corinthians 9, if I'm neglecting the relationships that God has placed in front of me, then I am not running the race. I will be disqualified. That's the language that he uses. Uh, He also says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that if I neglect those of my own household, I've denied the faith, I'm worse than a non-believer, right? So Mm. my family roles are actually what's most important. If I neglect them for the sake of quote-unquote ministry, I am not actually serving God. I'm serving what I want to do, right? My role is to be a husband and a father first. If my ministry is precluding me from doing that, I can't tell myself at night, well, look how many people I'm leading to God. Clearly, I'm doing the right thing. And all the while, my kids and my wife resent me, and I don't have a relationship with either any of them. Right? That's, that's just <clears throat> not true. So um, I remember reading some of those <clears throat> old missionary stories of you know the, the husband being gone for— years at a time and getting a letter that one of his children had died and just stayed out there and and sort of the arrangement they had made. I've never understood that. Yeah, no, it it doesn't. Again, that doesn't really jive well with what we see in Scripture, right? Again, if you have kids, that is to be your priority. And that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 7. He's like, man, if if that's your priority and you're in a persecuted environment, that's not good, right? That's going to be detrimental to you. Um, But he also tells people who are married, don't seek to be loosed. In other words, if, if you already have that burden, don't mm-hmm. say like, well, I don't want this anymore. <laughs> I'm going to divorce my wife and yeah. abandon my kids because right. it's tough. Yeah. He's like, no, no, no. you got to hold fast to the vows that you made. You need to be there for your kids. But, but again, you would never from the Bible generally get the idea that having kids or getting married is unideal. 
right? And we certainly, at least in the West, do not live in a situation where we are, where we are under horrible persecution and right. distress to the point where we're worried about our children's very lives. Right. I mean, you could say that figuratively speaking, but it's the cultural war that we're talking about. Right. And in our case, it seems that having more children would be a benefit to the right. future of our place in the and, world. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, when you look at the early church, they were in a far worse situation than we are in uh, when it comes to persecution and hatred from the world, and yet they procreated a lot. And a lot of how they grew was through these family units dividing and conquering, right? So they, they grew up. So the church was growing in two ways. It was through evangelism and procreation. That's how the church was growing. Um, and I can make the argument, by the way, that a lot of uh, parents are failing in this calling because with how many people we're bringing in through evangelism, we're losing through deconversion of kids who grow up to see hypocrisy within the church and leave it. So um, we're not doing a very good job of keeping kids within the, the bonds of the church, which is not great, but mm -hmm. that's kind of a discussion for another time. Now, now again, like where does this idea come? If it doesn't come from the church, it doesn't come from the Bible, where does it come from? Well, it really comes from one guy, right? His name was Thomas Malthus, and he wrote a really interesting book, the late 1700s, and it was called an essay on the principle of population. So he was a bit of an economist, a bit of a sociologist, really, really bright guy. But he had a very interesting theory within the book, and it caught like wildfire. And it really spoke to the Western decadent mindset, and I'll explain why in a second. So this is a quote from his book where I think he really sums up his thesis pretty well. He says, the power of population is so superior to the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. The vices of mankind are active and able ministers of depopulation. They are the precursors in the great army of destruction and often finish the dreadful work themselves. But should they fail in this war of extermination, sickly seasons, epidemics, pestilence, and plague advance in a terrific array and sweep off their thousands and ten thousands, should success still be incomplete? By the way, what's success in this scenario? depopulation, right? Killing enough people so that we don't overpopulate the earth, okay? Should success be incomplete, gigantic inevitable famine stalks in the rear and with one mighty blow levels the population with the food of the world. So what he's predicting is he's saying as the population increases at an exponential rate, that's what he was witnessing at this time, if the population increases at, at a concurrent exponential rate, Eventually, we will overpopulate the earth. We will destroy all the natural resources. We'll take up too many of the natural resources. And through that folly, we're going to starve ourselves out. Now, his theory was modified to a certain extent in the 1900s by people who started predicting that not only will it cause famine and plague for humanity, but it will actually, our population problem mixed with the Industrial Revolution, will cause global warming and a destruction of the earth from that angle as well. So you see this apocalyptic imagery that if we continue to procreate as humans, not only is it not good for you to procreate, it's bad. You're doing something evil hmm. if you procreate because you are bringing us closer and closer to the brink of destruction, right? That's what he's predicting in this passage. Now, um, throughout, for the next couple hundred years, many, many people were disciples of Malthus, right? They were preaching this gospel of Malthus throughout the world. Darwin was one of them, by the way. Mm. Darwin absolutely believed this. Um, not only did Darwin believe it, Marx believed it, for sure, and his disciples all believed it. 
Mao Zedong believed it. Joseph Stalin believed it. Fidel Castro believed it, right? Wow. All these socialistic people absolutely believe what, what uh, Thomas Malthus is saying here. Mm. And they're trying to undo it, right? This is why the communist regime, uh, communist regimes throughout the 1900s didn't fear massively depopulating their countries, right? Whenever a communist regime takes over, they immediately start culling the population. And some of them don't stop, right? Good example would be China to this day has the, well, it was the one child policy. Now it's the two child policy because yeah. it wasn't working out too hot for them. We'll see how the two child policy works out for them. But this fear, they're not shy about it. They will say, this is the only way we stop overpopulation within our country, within our culture. We have to cull the population. We have to get rid of the population. Otherwise, we're going to overtax our natural resources and die out from that direction. They're very, very scared of this. And it all comes from this guy, Thomas Malthus. Now, why does this theory appeal so much to the Western mindset, right? Why didn't it take off in Africa? Why didn't it take off in the Middle East? Why not in places that are more impoverished within Asia? Why in these very particular industrialized societies? Well, Malthus gives a really, really bad argument as to why the population in Europe at the time he was writing it was starting to stagnate because a big antagonistic approach to his writings, people were saying, well, okay, Malthus, well, if what you're saying is as uh, our prosperity increases, we're going to keep populating at an exponential rate and we're going to depopulate the earth. If that's true, why is it that Europe's population increase is slowing down to a great extent? Now, what he says, he gives a really lame answer, but essentially what he says is, well, it's really tough to have kids in our culture, right? Uh, you know, we just have these property taxes and we have these like really, and he goes, it's really boring part of the book. He goes through all the, the taxation and all the different political uh, legislation that is going on in his time. He's like, it's just too hard to have kids. And that's why people ha aren't having kids. And he's just wrong. He's just wrong. The reason why population slows in Western civilizations and the reason why this particular theory really appeals to us is because having a kid is always a form of sacrifice. It's always a form of sacrifice. It always has been. Mm. However, when you are in an impoverished situation, if you're in a tribal community, that is not only an uh, important sacrifice, it's a necessary sacrifice. If you do not have kids, you will die, right? They are, you know, the, the funny statement, they're the poor man's welfare. You know what I mean? Not mm. the poor man's welfare, the poor man's social security. It's like <clears throat> your kids will one day take care of you. Your kids will carry on your progeny. Your kids will inherit your land. Your kids are going to help you on the farm, right? If you do not have kids, enemies will wipe you out. You will not be able to produce enough food. And you're definitely not going to be able to live through old age because as your body deteriorates, someone has to take care of you. And there is no welfare program or social security to yeah, do it. Right. You need kids. So again, it's not just a that would be great if we had some kids and honey, you know, let's try for two because <clears> I always wanted even numbers. No, it's like either we have kids or we are going to have an early death, right? Mm. We're not gonna make it. So the, actually, when you look at the population of the earth, the more impoverished an area of the world is, the faster its population is increasing, right? So where is the population increasing the most? It's not Europe, it's India. It's places, weird places in Africa. It's the Middle East, right? That's the places that are growing in population. And those are the places that are sending immigrants out into the Western nations. And it's because they need to have kids. There's no option. They have to do it. Western civilization, because we don't need to have kids, we realize that this, un, this sacrifice that you have to take on is not necessary anymore. 
So why would I? I have too many conveniences and there's way too many conveniences. There's way too many comforts and it's way too inconvenient to have a child and to have it stuck away. A lot of my resources, I can't go on as many vacations. I have to get rid of some of my luxuries It may change the kind of vehicle I have to drive. It may change the groceries. It might, right. There are all these, and just the physical burden of having kids, right? If you don't need to do it, you stop doing it. Hmm. That's the whole point. His philosophy feeds the ego of Western civilization who already doesn't want to have kids, who already doesn't want the inconvenience of having to settle down, of having to get married, of having to procreate with just one person and make a relationship work and raise those kids in a particular way and sacrifice time, effort, and from the body, right? That's something that just doesn't appeal to us, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that we want to do. And so wouldn't it be great if there was a theory out there that justified my laziness, right? It's not, it's not my laziness. It's not my unwillingness to sacrifice. You see, I'm saving the planet by not having mm-hmm. kids. I'm, I'm, I'm buying for a force for good. I'm doing something good, right? And, and if you listen to people who are child-free, you'll never hear them say, yeah, we're just lazy. You know, that's it. We're just lazy. We don't want to do it. We know it's wicked, but I don't care. You know, it's always, we're doing something good. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not bad that we're doing this. It's actually good. The world is being overpopulated. You know, we, we don't have the resources. So it's actually I'm how taking dare you have children right. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where now that rather than trying to justify themselves, they're actually accusing the child makers. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. How could you be so selfish and bring children into this world? How could you do that? That's I've, right. I've heard those comments. No, it's absolutely. Crazy. Absolutely. You're, you're taking away the resources. You're doing something bad. Right. It's it's all over. I mean, in fact, when Roe versus Wade was overturned last year. Um, I remember the the hue and outcry was mainly like, well, what are we going to do with all these extra kids? You know, there's too many kids being born. What are we going to do with all these extra kids? You know, God forbid that we have extra kids running around. You know, we need to just kill them so that way we're not going to have any problems. And another part of the book, he actually argues that it's mm-hmm. good that some cultures leave their infants out to die. That's a crazy statement. Now, I was telling you before the show, the interesting thing about Malthus is that he was in a Christian world, though. So the, the main philosophy of the day was Christian. And so he's able to call out. He's like, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. But he doesn't, he's only doing that from a worldview that's Christian. Once you remove Christianity from his worldview, why wouldn't you kill kids to preserve the race as a whole? Right? Why is that a bad thing? He didn't foresee that to be the case, but he was sorely mistaken and wrong. He didn't think his theory would be taken to the levels that it's been taken today where people are actively arguing that abortion is a net good for our world because it's keeping the population down, right? Uh, including China, not only abortion, which is a form of infanticide, but straight up infanticide, where people are legitimately just killing kids in order to prevent the population and from And most often up. in the name of convenience. In the name of convenience, Because right. teenage pregnancy has actually dropped, so it's not like kids are having kids and they don't know what to do with them, but uh, these are adults. That's right. That's right. So uh, it's a really interesting thing to study. I mean, there's much more that we could say on it. I, I just want people to be challenged to, to see, again, the, the ideal of our lives is to get married and to have children. Now, not everyone's going to live in that ideal. There are reasons why you might not be able to. But I, I've always, and I was talking to my wife about it just a little bit ago. I mean, it's funny how Christians today actively discourage marriage. Like in youth ministries and stuff, just be just be happy in your singleness, just hmm. be content in your singleness. Don't worry about. Look, 
I am all for you being content in your singleness, right? Contentment, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. We need to be content in Christ alone. However, there are certain things that God wants and desires for someone's life. And yes, if you're under horrible distress and discomfort, if you're in persecution and you can't have a successful career, you're under persecution, you can't get married, you can't have kids, that is a tragedy, but it's one that God could sustain you within. But if you have every availability to do those things and you restrict them from yourself, you are incurring your own misery. And there's no reason to do it. Can God get you through it? Yeah, but why? It's like saying, can you live without uh, with just one leg? Well, yes, but can you thrive with just one leg? Absolutely, but is that ideal? That's the, that's the question, right? It is ideal to once again, to seek out marriage and to seek to have children. That is a good thing that God has designed and desires for us. And it's a good goal to have if you're a young person, if you're single, to be thinking that way of, I eventually want to get married. I eventually want to have kids. And it will, if you have that perspective, don't you think that would change the way you live? Don't you think it would change the kind of jobs you would take or the education you would pursue or the kind of sexual relationships you're having right now, right? Uh, one of the reasons why, again, <clears throat> promiscuity and sexuality, sexual profligacy is going up is because people are no longer oriented towards this goal of getting married and having kids. And again, that's true in the church hmm. as well as outside. Um, there are very few couples nowadays that I do wow. premarital with that are virgins when I start talking to them. Mm. Very few young couples. And I've married quite a few in the last couple of years. Very, very few of them have actually, not just virgins with one another, but virgins outside of that current relationship. Very rare. And that's in the church. These are faithful Christians, grew up in the church, love God, but they don't really see it as a big deal. Wow. They really don't. They, they, they might say, eh, it's not best, but, you know, whatever. But... And again, it's because people aren't oriented in this way anymore. So, mm. um, I, again, there's much more I could say to it. Uh, you know, there's even things I, I might want to say to kind of balance out what I'm getting at because I don't want to come across too harsh. But, yeah. Are people directly copying his ideas and trying to apply them today, saying that? Because I remember there was a, oh, gosh, Scott would remember the name, but uh, there was a Doomsdayer. <clears throat> Paul Ehrlich. Yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> yeah. Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb in 1968, uh, and he made the same exact arguments of Malthus. He just used updated figures and mm -hmm. statistics from his day. And he was obviously wrong. Yeah. So, so now what are people who are, you know, really trying to promote the idea that our population is killing the earth, we're killing everything, and so we need to depopulate or we need to slow yeah. down. People just directions. ignore it. So. There was a guy named Julian Simon who wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource in 1981, and he argued the exact opposite of Paul Ehrlich. He said, no, 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 it's not that we have an overpopulation problem. It's that humanity is growing at a good rate because we've solved a lot of medical problems that have existed, so people are living longer. This is a really good thing. But he says the same power and force that has allowed for longevity in human existence is also the same force that could provide for, for extreme resource improvement that will sustain an increased population. Yeah, that increasing <clears throat> population would actually make life better for most people. That's right. And that we would almost wipe out the existence of third world countries eventually. That's right. That's right. And so he argued the exact opposite of Paul Ehrlich and they got into a fight and he bet him. He said, okay, fine. How about this? You pick five precious metals, five, if they go up in price, meaning that inflation has gone up and resources have gone down, then you win the bet and I'll pay you a thousand dollars. 
But if they go down in price, meaning that they've become more prevalent and resources have increased, you give me $1,000. Julian Simon won the bet. Hmm. He won the bet handedly. It wasn't even close. And nobody talks about it, right? Nobody actually oh. talks about the fact that he was absolutely correct. As the population increased, which, by the way, between the time they made the bet in the 80s to the early 2000s when the bet ended, population has increased a lot since then. And yet he won handedly. And like you said, poverty is actually going down in a world uh, system. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't any poverty. It just means that it's gone down exponentially as the population increases. Yeah, the quality of living for human beings are at an all-time high from all of human history. Mm -hmm. there, there hasn't been a higher percentage of people having a higher quality of life, access to health care, access to food and shelter, all the necessities where they can focus things on their lives on things like education, art, raising a family very easily than any time in history. It's mm. very privileged to, for anyone, anywhere in the world, really, yeah. to live in the 21st century. Absolutely. I remember hearing someone have this discussion about overpopulation, and they said, well, the entire population of the earth could actually live in the state of Texas. Yeah. Have you heard that before? Yeah. And that the earth is quite capable of handling ridiculously more population, that all the problems we see are really as a result of sin, greed, um, the wasting of resources, <clears throat> the more uh, ingenuity we have, the more righteousness we have, the more we could actually sustain a much larger population. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's get to some questions. Are you good for that? Let's All do right, it. Let's, our first question for today, uh, does James 5, 14 through 16 apply to us today? Uh, Great question. So I'll read the passage, but essentially this is a passage about healing and prayer. So I'll read the whole thing now, and I'll explain how it does still apply to this day. So um, James 5, and I think you said to start in verse 14, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and the, the side note was um, physical illness and healing, and the, and the cause of some sickness is sin. Yeah. No, absolutely. So... Uh, it's actually, yeah, we'll start in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then call for the elders of the church and let them pray over you. Uh, I mean, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit so there's a couple mistakes that you can make when you're reading this uh, account so the first one that you can make is if you follow this procedure all illnesses will necessarily be healed so i'll address that one in a second but the second mistake that you can make is that all illnesses are a result of sin because he talks about confessing sin and being forgiven in the same sentence now, what James is doing very clearly is he is actually referencing something that his brother did. Right? Remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, there's a story of a paralytic man who is lowered down while Jesus is preaching in the home of Simon Peter. Mm -hmm. And he's lowered down, and Jesus forgives this guy of his sin, and then he heals him of his paralysis. Now, the reason why Jesus did that, and he gives us the explanation in the passage itself, the reason why he did that is because he's trying to show us that all the problems of your body are secondary to the problems of your soul. And what James is saying here 
is that whatever's going on in your body, that's bad, but the bodily decay that we all experience on a daily basis is a symptom of the separation that we have from God. Mm -hmm. And unless that is healed, the bodily decay is actually going to mirror your spiritual decay and you will be apart from God. If you are healed though, if you're saved, if you're forgiven, then the bodily decay acts in an antithesis to what's going on in your soul, right? So Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, for though our outward man perishes, our inner man is being renewed day by day, right? So he's saying that what's happening to my body is actually symbolic of the dross, the, the pollution, the cancer being burned out of my soul and me being brought into a greater life and greater spiritual health before Christ, right? So what James is saying is if someone's got a, a healing problem, right? They got a sickness and it's driving them to church, right? It's driving them to go to the elders, to talk to them, to ask for prayer. If that's what's bringing someone to church, great, pray for that guy, but address his deeper issues. Hey, how's your relationship with God? What's going on in your life, you know? And hopefully that desire for healing will also bring about a greater healing in that person's life. They'll pursue God for other reasons and not just as a healer of the body, but as again, the redeemer of their souls. So that's what James is doing there. He's not saying that illness is a result of your personal sin, right? Sickness, illness, depravity, right? You can produce illness as a result of sin for sure, but in a grand scale, that's not the cause. So for instance, if I'm an alcoholic and my liver is failing, that is a result of my something specifically wrong with me that is due to my behavior, right? And I should evaluate that. But ultimately, not all of my health problems are a result of sin. Some of them are just because we're living in a sinful, fallen world that is, again, separated from God. And that's why we're incurring physical harm and ailments and things like that. So that's the answer to that question. On the other side, I say, is this for today? And I would say, yes. Now, in the Bible, there are many passages that talk about prayer in an emphatic sense that we know practically are not true, right? So for instance, Jesus, he speaks in hyperbolic language like this all the time. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you, right? That's a pretty impressive statement. He's saying that if I ask something from God in the name of Jesus, I have it. Now, is that true, right? Does that always happen? If I pray something in the name of Jesus, if I'm seeking the will of God and I'm praying in faith, does, do I always get what I want? And the answer is clearly no. Now, how can we know for a fact that that's not what Jesus is saying? Well, was there an instance in which Jesus prayed something from the heart, a sincere desire that he had, and the answer from his father was no? Yes, right? <laughs> so before the cross, yeah, Jesus garden. prays, and he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. That's the will of Jesus in his, in his, in his frail human uh, state that he took on so that he might endure the penalty of our sins. He did not want to die, right? And so he was in conflict with what he knew to be right in his spirit and what he felt to be right in his body, right? The preservation of life is one of the fundamental instincts of man, right? None of us want to die. But yet he knew from a spiritual standpoint that he needed to die, right? He needed to bear our sins and our penalties. So he had that, that kind of interesting dichotomy happening within his dual nature. Now, as Jesus prays, what does he say? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what he's saying is that the will of God would trump his will, right? The will of the Father would trump the will of the Son in that moment. Because again, his will was being derived from his body and not from his spirit. So you have an instance in which the answer to a sincere prayer was no. 
right? And there are instances in the Bible, not just from Jesus, but from the apostles, where the answer to prayer is no, right? God says no. So does that invalidate Jesus? And the answer, the answer to that question is no, right? It doesn't invalidate what Jesus said, but it gives clarity to what he's getting at, right? It's a hyperbolic statement, and it's to be put this way. The answer to every prayer will not be yes. However, the only way to get a yes from God is to pray, right? So you're not going to get an answer to prayer without praying. However, not every prayer that you're going to make before God is going to be answered in a yes. So what James is saying is if you want a answer to prayer for healing to be yes, you got to pray. And he gives a prescribed method in which you ought to pray, right? Don't just pray on your own, but recognize that you're a part of, commu of a community of believers who love and care for you, go into the body of Christ, go into the fellowship mm. that you are a part of, and if you're not a part of one, become a part of one. Seek out the leadership that represent the presence of the Holy Spirit in that body, as well as the guidance of doctrine within that uh, facility. You seek them out. They anoint you with oil, which is very picturesque of the Holy Spirit and God's anointing upon our lives. Right? You seek them out. They do this representative ritual, and they pray over you, and God might answer that prayer, yes. Will he always? No. But he might. And so why shouldn't we seek out healing when God has given us an ability to be healed? And that's a very good thing. We ought to seek out healing. This is the prescribed way that we seek it out, right? Not just individually of, oh, something's going wrong in my life. I'm just going to pray about it alone. No, invite people in to your struggles and your sufferings. For at the very least, if they pray for you and God doesn't answer yes, you will at least have community with people that know what's going on in your life, care enough about you to talk to God about it, and are going to at least offer you practical help to get you through whatever ailment is troubling you, right? So why wouldn't you go into a communal place? Why wouldn't you represent your faith in a ritualistic manner, right? These things are all good. They're all beneficial for us. I think one of the mistakes of Protestantism, and you know, I, I talk about it a lot, is that we have denied the ritual because we see it as merely symbolic. And what I always have to tell people is there's no such thing as mere symbolism. Symbolism is always important, otherwise we wouldn't symbolize it, right? So take, take one thing that you could say, well, that's mere symbolism. Well, numbers are merely <clears throat> symbolic. They're just representation of, of values, right? That's all they are. Well, communion would be a good example. Mm -hmm. that we still practice communion, even though we say we're not literally sacrificing the body and blood of Jesus over and over again, like trans, like the view of transubstantiation, or, or that Jesus is literally present consubstantiation. Mm -hmm. We believe in the remembrance view, I, as far as I know, <laughs> for yeah. the most part, um, <clears throat> and that the elements are symbolic of what took place, yeah. but they have tremendous meaning, and yeah. so there's great value. So in, again, like when you, again we take numeric values. They're merely symbolic, right? I could represent them in different ways. Different countries and different cultures have different figures to represent numeric values. However, if you get numbers right, you could put a man on the moon. If you get numbers wrong, you could have a debt ceiling crisis, kind of like what's going on right now in our, in our culture, yeah. in our country right now. So getting numbers correct, even though they're symbolic, they're not merely symbolic. They're symbolic representations of something that is real. Ritual is the same thing. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we have a ceremony for marriage? Why do you think we have a ceremony for giving of the body and blood of Christ, right? Why do you think? So the mistake that people can make is either A, it's merely symbolic, so it doesn't matter, or B, the symbol is everything, 
right? By doing it, it is the thing itself, yeah, right? Yeah. Right, and missing the point. That'd be the other extreme. Exactly. So by dunking me in water, that is what's cleansing me of sin. It's not a symbol of what God is doing in my life. It is actually what's doing it. Instead of me taking of the bread mm -hmm. and the blood of Christ and saying, this is what's happening symbolic in my life. The sacrifice of Jesus is coming into me as a person, and it's cleansing me. It's sanctifying me from mm -hmm. the inside out. I'm taking in more of Jesus and less of me, right? That's the beauty of it. But I could mistake that and say, this is how I'm taking in the grace of God, and this is how Jesus is offering that propitiatory sacrifice mm -hmm. to me anew and for my continuing sins, right? So I could take the symbol and I can make it, it's real, it's absolutely real, or I could take the symbol and say it's merely a symbol, equal and opposite mistakes. Mm -hmm. So when you look at James, it's like, is, you, is it a formula? You go up to the elders, they anoint you with oil, they pray for you, and that is the way that you will be healed. Well, no, it's representative of what's healing us as Christians, right? It's representative of the anointing of the Holy Spirit within my life that's unifying me to Christ and cleansing me from my sin. And it's a picture, when I'm going before the elder board, it's a picture of me being unified to the body of Christ, which is, again, the main resource that God has provided for me on this earth for my sanctification and growth in God, right? So why wouldn't I represent, again, my faith in God and my desire for healing in that way? Mm. So the ritual is important, but it, in and of itself it doesn't. So that's why at this church we actually do the ritual, right? When someone wants healing, we call the elders forward, we anoint them with oil, and we pray for them because we believe that the ritual is important, the symbol is important, but we also try to help people understand what the symbol is pointing to. And again, that's why James is doing here, and that's why he intersperses the concept of sin and forgiveness in the concept of healing mm. and restoration, right? That's not a mistake that he does that. In the same book, he also talks about praying that it is the Lord's will when you do this or do that. So mm. there, it's important, I think you'd agree, that <clears throat> when you look at passages, I think what people struggle with this healing passage is that it says you will be, you will recover. Yeah. And the idea is that it's it seems so dogmatically like it, this will happen, right? And when it doesn't happen, well, where did it go wrong? Right. And you have the extreme view that it's it's a guarantee. Those like in the Word of Faith, the healing ministries, well, there must have been something wrong with your faith, or perhaps you didn't get the right kind of oil, or you know, it's not it's it's a formula, and they're trying to apply the formula, and when it doesn't work, something's wrong. You can't you know blame the minister, but uh, something fell apart somewhere. Hmm. But they're not looking at the whole of Scripture. To make sense of the whole Christian worldview, as opposed to just extrapolating one passage and and seeing, oh well, it says you will recover. So why am I not recovering? What's right. going on? And I can right. see how people struggle with that. Right. And a lot of people, again, they they just wrestle with the Bible in its usage of this hyperbolic language, right? And they don't realize that it is hyperbolic. Just because we take the Bible literally doesn't mean that we don't interpret it through methods of language, how people mm -hmm. use language, right? Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, right. you're not worthy of me. Yeah. Does he really want me to hate my dad? Mm -hmm. Right? No, obviously yeah, not. He's using a, a, a statement of extreme for emphasis sake right. to show that your love for God should be so immense that it, it, in comparison for your love for your parents, it ought to seem as hate. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And same thing here. It's like, why is James using these emphatic statements? It's because the power of God is emphatic, right? The ability to heal is amazing. Mm. It's incredible. And I ought to go to God in faith, knowing that he can heal my body if it is his will, but it might not be his will, mm. right? And that's why you say James follows it up later. So it's not just like, well, you know, the Bible contradicts itself. No, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And if you're going to say the Bible contradicts itself, then you'd have to say that the people who wrote the Bible are so dumb that they 
they contradict themselves in the same chapter mm-hmm. oftentimes, yeah. right? And, and that's just, <clears throat> no one would read something like that. And right? even James would have known that there were times where Jesus went into a town and nobody was healed. That's right. He would have known that, and obviously he knows that not all heal, healings will happen. <laughs> that's right. I mean, think about uh, Paul, for instance. He, he talks about not healing Timothy. He talks about praying, right? Paul prays in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, three times that God gives him some sort of form of healing, that a, a messenger of Satan would be taken away from him, that a thorn in the flesh would be mm-hmm. removed. And Jesus' response to him is not, hey, you didn't do it right. Yeah. Try again. Did you follow the formula? Did you follow the formula? What kind of oil did you use? <laughs> it was, my grace is sufficient for you, mm-hmm. for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Mm. Right? So Paul is told, you did it right, but I'm saying no. Mm. And there's a reason why I'm saying no. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the Bible is very clear about this, right? You, it, it's a mistake to take these hyperbolic statements and think that the Bible is giving you a theology, right? It's, it's instead inferring a theology that has to be combined with other passages to make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Peter. Very, very, very insightful. I hope that was helpful for you, uh, PT fan who asked that question. Uh, our next question is from Rian Zahn. I hope I said your name correctly. If I have the tongues of angels, question mark. Do angels have a heavenly language? Speaking of hyperbolic language, yeah, going absolutely. to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, yeah. where the Apostle Paul says, if I have faith to move mountains mm-hmm. or the ability to speak in tongues of angels but do not have love, yeah. I am just a noisy instrument. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so like you said, when you look at the passage, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul is talking about the supremacy of love, why it is so important, and how it overshadows every other gift that either God could supernaturally give you or that you could give back to God. And so he, he pairs it both ways. So he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am but a sounding brass and a clinging cymbal. Right? If I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all knowledge and all mysteries but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all of my goods to the poor and even my body to be burned, have not love, I am nothing. So Paul is using clearly hyperbolic language, right? It's impossible for a human being to have all knowledge. We know that. We know that emphatically to be true, to be the case. Every time Moses asked for more, like, show me your glory. God's like, you cannot take my glory. Daniel is shown amazing visions, and God says, seal the book, for you can't understand the whole thing. Peter says about the prophets of the Old Testament that they wrote about things that they did not understand. Right? So the concept that a human, finite human brain could actually fit inside of it the infinite of God is a fallacy. It's mm-hmm. clearly a fallacy. So is Paul making a mistake here? Well, no, he's speaking hyperbolically. Mm-hmm. Right? He's saying, if I could actually fit infinity inside of a finite. Imagine this. Right. Imagine if I could. <laughs> he's saying that still wouldn't yeah. do it. Now. Is he speaking hyperbolically about the tongues? Why wouldn't he? Why not? Because all the other analogies yeah. that he gives are hyperbolic, clearly. We and don't obviously. have any records of him actually moving mountains. Right. And uh, he didn't give his body to be burned. Right. <laughs> he gave his body, but not to be burned. Not to be burned. And uh, I don't know how that would benefit the poor either. But you know, like, but that's, that's the idea. Hyperbolic. Like, I'm willing to give you everything, including even my body. You know. Like, now that's not to say that yeah. angels do do not have their right. own language. But they this is all speculation. Yeah. We have no way of really knowing. And we have no way of knowing if we could even speak in the language, if it would even be intelligible. Because remember, we have to speak using auditory. Uh, yeah, we language. vibrate. We vibrate air right. that ears can attenuate and understand. Right. 
when you have an incorporeal being that does not have a physical body right. can manifest physically by God's will and decree, yeah. but in their nature are incorporeal, right. then they don't make sounds. Exactly. They, if they communicate, it's on a whole other plane. <laughs> it's going to be in a way that we don't even understand, mm. right? It might be direct communication. They might be able to share thoughts directly without having to use an intermediary of language, which is pretty hardcore and beyond our comprehension. Yeah. But that, that's very plausible for them. So what Paul's saying using hyperbolic language is even if I could speak as angels do, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Now, why is that important? Some people in more Pentecostal circles, they say that the gift of tongues is unintelligible to human beings because mm -hmm. they're speaking in an angelic language. The problem is, is that there's no evidence for that within the scriptures. Every time the word tongue, the word tongue that we translate tongue right now is literally the word for language. That's what it means. And a language is intelligible. In the same chapter, Paul talks about musical instruments and how if you don't resonate them at the right frequency, it doesn't sound like music or harmony. It just sounds like noise, mm -hmm. right? So obviously he's saying that the human throat, the human vocal cords can resonate sounds, but if they're not, this is what my son's doing right now. He's just babbling. It's nonsense, right? It's not the gift of tongues. He can't speak intelligently yet. So whatever the gift of tongues is and how it manifests, it must be done in an intelligible manner because it's with that intent. And that's how we see it utilized effectively in the book of Acts. At Pentecost, they're speaking in intelligible languages that people are understanding of, right? So that's how tongues is gonna manifest. It's not gonna be unintelligible. Well, thank you for that question. And if we didn't get your question today, we'll get to it tomorrow. Uh, thanks for tuning in, uh, tuning in with us tomorrow. Same place, same time, God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.